This week, the Supreme Court handed down Moore versus Harper, a significant decision regarding elections in America. In a six to three ruling, the court rejected the independent state legislature theory and found that the election clause does not give state legislatures exclusive power over elections. Hello, friends. I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. Joining us to discuss the Moore decision and what it means for the future of elections are Judge Michael Ludig and Professor Evan Burnick. Judge Michael Ludig served on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit. He is a trustee of the National Constitution Center, and he served as co-counsel for the respondents in Moore versus Harper and has written extensively about the case. Judge Ludig, welcome back to We the People. Thank you, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be on with you today. And Evan Burnick is assistant professor of law at Northern Illinois University College of Law. He filed a brief in the case in support of Harper and is the co-author of The Original Meaning of the 14th Amendment, Its Letter and Spirit, which he co-wrote with Randy Barnett. Evan, it's great to welcome you back to We the People. Thank you, Jeff, for the invitation. It's an honor to be here sharing space with Judge Ludig. Judge Ludig, you have called the Moore case one of the most important cases for American democracy since America's founding. Tell us why and what you think of the decision. Uh, Jeff, in, in short, this is now the most significant case in American history for democracy and also for representative government in America. That's because at stake in Moore versus Harper was the interpretation of the independent state legislature theory of interpretation, which would apply equally under both the electors clause and the elections clause of the Constitution. And uh, as applied to under both of those clauses, it would have dramatically altered federal elections in the United States from the way in which those elections have been conducted uh, since the founding of the country. In particular, the most aggressive version of the independent state legislature uh, theory in the context of the elections clause, which was the context in which um, Moore versus Harper arose, uh, would give the state legislatures unreviewable power and authority to um, conduct the federal elections in the states in accordance with the legislature's enactments without regard to uh, the state constitutional provisions that, that might operate uh, on, on that, those legislative enactments. And, 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 and by the way, uh, although Moore versus Harper arose in the context of, a, of redistricting by the North Carolina legislature, the elections clause applies to all regulations of federal elections uh, in the states by the state legislatures. Evan Burnick, Judge Ludig has just said that the 
Warren Harper is the most important constitutional case since America's founding. Uh, do you agree or disagree? So I do believe in it is immensely important case, and I really do want to thank Judge Ludig for all the work he's done as a conservative jurist to highlight the dangers that the independent state legislature claims that the court rejected, presented to democracy, and to name and oppose those who have propagated it, to wit, Donald Trump and his allies. Besides being right on the merits, I'm enough of a legal realist to think that arguments like his coming from a conservative judge with a sterling record of defending the rule of law matter more to the court's conservatives who joined the majority opinion than, say, mine. So thank you for everything that you've done. And yeah, let's talk about the case. So the Supreme Court did not reject independent state legislature theory as such. It rejected a couple of claims, particularly pernicious, I think, claims about state legislative power under the federal constitution. And I want to talk about exactly what I mean by that. Independent state legislature theory has always been a a they rather than an it. It comes in various forms, which I'm just going to categorize for the sake of discussion as big, medium, and small. So big ISL, the worst form of the independent state's legislature or the worst independent state legislature theory among independent state legislature theories, was the form in which it was defended by the North Carolina legislature, holds that state legislatures are empowered by the federal constitution to make rules governing federal elections, even if they violate their own state constitutions in doing so. They have plenary power to make election rules as they choose, and state Supreme Courts can't stop that because of the federal constitution. Court rejects that. The medium independent state legislature theory was kind of a fallback position. and It said, well, state legislatures are empowered by the federal constitution to make federal election rules, but state Supreme Courts can review those rules for conformity to constitutional procedure, procedures laid out in state constitutions, but not constitutional substance, like, say, the free and fair elections clause that was interpreted in this case by the North Carolina Supreme Court. But then there's a small form of the independent state legislature theory that says, look, state legislatures are empowered by the federal constitution, And they can presumptively make federal election rules, but state Supreme Courts can review those rules and hold them unconstitutional so long as they don't do anything too wacky. If they do something too wacky, that could provide a basis for federal court intervention on behalf of state legislatures. And the courts accepted that. The courts in part five of the opinion says we're not rejecting the proposition that federal courts have some role to play in monitoring state Supreme Court interpretations of their own constitutions in the election setting. We're just not saying that state legislatures are completely untrammeled by state constitutions. And that invites the question, just how big is the federal court's role in ensuring that state legislatures are able to exercise what the court says is their Article I power to make election laws. 
just how wacky does a state court's interpretation of their own constitution have to be to justify federal court intervention? The court does not say, leaves it open, and therefore the court is going to have to play a role in coming election seasons to determine um, in the face of claims that will inevitably be raised about state Supreme Courts going too far, doing things that are too wacky, and figuring out whether they have violated the Article One Elections Clause in doing so. Thank you for flagging the open questions after the majority decision. Um, in, in, in understanding how broad the uh, version of the independent state legislature theory the dissenters adopted, why don't we begin with the dissent? And Justice Thomas, joined by Justices Gorsuch uh, and Alito with regard to the mootness question, say, the question presented was whether the people of a state can place state constitutional limits on the time, places, and manner of holding congressional election that the legislature of the state has the power to prescribe. And Justice Thomas agreed with the petitioners who said no. Judge Ludig, describe Justice Thomas's reasoning. On what, on what, on what grounds did he accept the independent state legislature theory, and, and how broad a theory did he accept? Jeff, let me first say that Pro- Professor Burnick is, is exactly correct uh, in what the court in saying what the court did and did not do. Uh, most significantly, the court uh, rejected the version, if you will, of the independent state legislature uh, theory that was advanced by petitioners. Uh, it sounds to me as if uh, Professor Burnick disagrees that, 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 that with their argument to the court, as do I. Second, uh, Professor Burnick discussed essentially the central claim by petitioners that state courts could uh, limit the state legislature's powers uh, on procedural, procedural matters, procedurally, but not on, on substantive matters. And as as the professor pointed out, uh, the Supreme Court roundly rejected that that dichotomy and distinction, which petitioners had argued was uh, most consistent with the court's prior precedents. The court said in its opinion yesterday that that no that that, that there are precedents supported no such substance procedural versus substance uh, distinction. And then, of course, the professor is also right in what in what the court did not decide, which we'll get to in a minute. But turning to your question specifically, uh, I think it's fair to say that 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 Justice Thomas, uh, to joined by uh, by Justice Gorsuch, uh, agreed w- with the principal argument uh, made by petitioners that. Uh, that the uh, the Constitution uh, commits the the power and authority to uh, uh, to prescribe the time, place, and manner for uh, holding elections to the state legislatures, and in so doing, uh, agreeing that that is a plenary authority that cannot be uh, uh, limited by any other uh, state uh, official or institution including the, 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 the respective state constitutions. Uh, and, uh, um, and, and in that way, 
uh, embraced the arguments by petitioners um, essentially wholesale uh, and implicitly, if not explicitly, rejecting what uh, what I believed and the majority ended up believing was the uh, compelling history uh, since before the founding uh, up to and including the the, the uh, ratification and for the uh, 200 almost 250 years since the the, the, the consistent unbroken practice of of uh, state courts applying their state constitutions to their state legislatures, federal and state election uh, uh, laws. In, in summary, uh, and, and, I, and I should say, Jeff and, and Professor, I, I've not had a chance to read the dissents, um, but, but from all that I have read about them, I believe that, that that it would be fair to say that they accepted the petitioner's arguments uh, in, in, uh, in, in the lion's share of them, at least. Uh, they, they did indeed. I'll read from the three premises that Justice Thomas invokes to support his conclusion and then ask you about them, Professor Burnick. He says, the first premise is that the people of a single state lack any ability to limit powers given by the people of the United States as a whole. And the second is that regulating time, places, and manners of congressional elections has to be delegated rather than reserved uh, to the states. And the third is that the legislature thereof does not mean the people of the state or the state is an undifferentiated body politic, but rather the lawmaking power as it exists under the state constitution. This premise comports with the usual constitutional meaning of the word state and legislature, as well as this court's precedent. Uh, Professor Burnett, can you unpack for us why Justice Thomas derives from those three premises the conclusion that he does? So I want to flag a remarkable feature about the second premise that Justice Thomas indicates here, being that regulating the times, place, and manners of congressional elections is no prerogative of state power, so that such power had to be delegated to rather than reserved by the states. In support of that proposition, Justice Thomas cites Justice Story and also U.S. Term Limits v. Thornton, a 1995 case, from which Justice Thomas dissented on the grounds that the power to regulate the times, place, and manner of congressional elections was not delegated by the federal constitution to the states, but was a specification of power that states already had. How Justice Thomas has come to a view about the elections clause, namely that it grants power to state legislatures, rather than specifies the exercise of existing power and empowers Congress to override the exercise of that power is something that goes unexplained in this opinion and, to my knowledge, isn't explained anywhere else. I think that Justice Thomas was right the first time. The court itself, the majority in this case, 
states what I think is an accurate characterization of what the elections clause, this part of the elections clause concerning times, place, and manner is doing. It says, shall. Shall is duty-imposing language. The clause takes existing power and directs it to be exercised in a particular way. It does not, and this is why Justice Thomas's second premise fails, it's not given to states by the federal constitution, and therefore there is no federal role that you can infer on the part of federal courts to monitor its exercise. Thank you very much for unpacking that aspect of Justice Thomas's second uh, premise. Judge Ludig, let me ask you about the third premise, which is that the legislature thereof doesn't mean the people of the states as an undifferentiated body politic, but the lawmaking power as it exists under the state constitution. Is Justice Thomas basically saying the meaning of the word legislature is clear, it doesn't include state constitutional review, and therefore we don't have to look at all of that founding era history and precedent and practice and tradition suggesting that state courts could review legislative decisions, or do I have that wrong? No, no, you have exactly right, and and so does Professor Burnick. This is the central issue in the case, Uh, and for me, it began when I first got into the case and learned that all of the parties, all of them, every everyone who had discussed the case, to my knowledge, were arguing the textual point that that the conferral of, of power uh, to whomever uh, is upon the legislature. The uh, petitioners were arguing that because it was committed to the, to the legislatures as distinguished from the states, for instance, that that confirmed that it was plenary authority upon the legislatures that could not be uh, affected, much less overridden, by, by, by the other state actors, uh, if you will. Then for the respondents' part, they were arguing that uh, the term legislature did not mean just the, the, the body responsible for a passage of laws in the given state, but rather it uh, referred to the, the whole of the legislative process, which they contended included any gubernatorial action that was required or not, and that would be permitted or not, such as a, a, a gubernatorial veto, but also review of the, of the legislature's uh, 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 enactments uh, by the state courts. So when I came for first to the, came to the case, and, and you know this, Jeff, um, I, was, I was convinced that, that neither side was right. And then I eventually wrote that to, to state the question that way is only to begin to answer it. It's not to answer it at all, contrary to what both parties believe. And so, um, you know, as I wrote in for the Atlantic on, in, in a couple of articles, I, I said, look, you know, the, the, I, I am actually 100% sure 
that the text of the Constitution is referring to the, the state body that enacts laws. And then we have to ask ourselves, as a matter of originalism, how, how what did the, uh, the framers of the Constitution uh, believe about that conferral of power upon the, the, the body responsible for passing laws? And from that, then, uh, I designed the argument that, uh, in, in, in essentially these terms, that, that the, the framers of the Constitution, because of the prior practice, not just in the United States, but, but in, in Great Britain, uh, they understood and accepted that the uh, enactments by the state legislatures would be reviewed by the, the state uh, courts for consistency with the respective state, state constitutions. But uh, then fast forward to the argument, uh, and I, I subsequently wrote a piece for The Atlantic uh, where I analyzed essentially every significant question at the argument. Uh, and uh, one of the points, I, one of the biggest points I made in that article was that there was, uh, uh, there was hardly a single question about the meaning of legislature in, in, in the constitutional text. And I said that the most reasonable inference from that complete absence of questions was that uh, all the members of the court were generally assuming that whatever, however legislature is defined, the question becomes one of originalism as to uh, what the framers of the Constitution understood and, and, and intended. And, uh, and, and so I think this is one of the most remarkable facts about this case and will be for the rest of history. Uh, the court and the majority, of course, did go ahead and, 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 and define legislature in the way that I, I believed and petitioners believed uh, is required to mean the you know the, the body responsible for for the enactments of law, uh, but then as Professor Burnick says, um, you know Justice Thomas in dissent with with uh, uh, Justice Gorsuch really begged off of that question, uh, seemingly unwittingly. Thanks so much for flagging that central question. We did indeed discuss it. Uh, you were co-counsel to my brother-in-law, Neil Katyal, who argued the case, and, and, and we, we were uh, brainstorming about, about the central question of the dispute about the meaning of legislature. Um, and then just help, help me understand, as a, as a methodological question, is, is, is Justice Thomas saying, you know, there, there may be a dispute among uh, the parties about what legislature meant at the time of the framing, but I, Justice Thomas, am convinced that it must have just meant legislature without any uh, judicial review, and therefore, because I think that meaning is clear, I just don't have to look at all of the overwhelming practice and history and tradition and context to the contrary? Uh, the short answer to that question is yes, but let me elaborate it a little bit. So Justice Thomas, with the third premise that legislature means elected representative body consisting of lawmakers, is effectively fighting a battle that he and also Chief Justice Roberts 
lost in a 2015 case. That case I'll just refer to as AIRC for Arizona Independent Redistricting Commission involved the constitutionality of an Arizona ballot initiative whereby voters amended Arizona's constitution to remove redistricting authority from the Arizona elected representative body legislature and vest that authority in an independent commission. And a divided court said that the meaning of legislature in the constitution is is broad enough to accommodate the drawing of a congressional map by an unelected body that makes laws in the form of a commission. Why? The majority, this is Justice Ginsburg, defined the word legislature to include effectively the lawmaking power of the states through whatever means law is made by the states. It could be a ballot initiative, it could be an unelected body empowered by a ballot initiative. Uh, It doesn't necessarily mean elected representative body. And Chief Justice Roberts, joined by Justice Thomas, dissented and marshaled, you know, an impressive amount of textual and historical evidence in support of the proposition that legislature means what we intuitively think of as legislature. Chief Justice Roberts has apparently been persuaded if by nothing else by the, the, then the force of precedent that's right or wrong as a historical matter, the law is that legislature is very broadly defined and in, can include more than Justice Thomas thinks it can. As a matter of how do we go about this as an original matter, we really can't just look at the word legislature and say, hmm, um, intuitively, what does that sound like to us? We need to immerse ourselves in the founding era, in the institutions that existed during that era, including institutions that don't always look exactly like what we intuitively think legislatures are. Uh, Look at what people were saying, look at what they were doing, um, and come to a conclusion on the basis of that rather than just intuitions about what the word would naturally mean to us. Because what's natural to us might not have been natural to them. The final point I want to make about this, though, is that even if Justice Thomas is right, even if Chief Justice Roberts was right that legislature means elected representative body, it doesn't get Justice Thomas to where he needs to go to be right on the merits of federal court's role in evaluating state Supreme Court's performance. He's got three premises. The first, power is delegated by the federal constitution. Okay, fine. Second premise, it's delegated by the elections clause to state legislatures. If that fails, it doesn't matter what legislatures are. There's no federal constitutional rights that state legislatures can claim to make laws. And I think that second premise is the most vulnerable premise, and it's the one um, that the Supreme Courts ultimately seem to reject before then coming back to in part five, which I'm sure we can get into. Judge Ludwig, one more beat on this, because I know that this, of course, is the question that motivated you to get involved in the the case to begin with. As an interpretive matter, how is it possible to claim 
that if, if the meaning of the word legislature is so clear that it couldn't possibly include state judicial review, that, that, that can trump all the overwhelming evidence that the original public meaning was, was something else. What, 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 how would you characterize this, let's call it new textualism or new formalism that could, could reach such a conclusion? Well, to, you know, to, to be as charitable as to Justice Thomas as I, I can be, um, it's not possible to reconcile those. And neither is it um, a new formalism of the kind you talked about. It is just straightforwardly not textualism. That is, the implications that he draws from his interpretation that legislature means the legislative body, specifically and only. Um, it's It's... I always thought that it was just self-evident that that textual argument uh, couldn't carry the day as a matter of constitutional textualism because in so many other places in the Constitution uh, does the the Constitution confer power upon uh, a named uh official entity like the executive, for instance, or even the judiciary. And no one has contended since the day the Constitution was ratified that with respect to to the non-judicial branches of government that I just mentioned, that because the power was conferred on the legislature or on the executive, that their actions are not reviewable under the federal constitution. So I I didn't see, I have never seen uh, this instance, which involves obviously federal power that, that has been accorded the state legislatures any different than the constitutional conferral of powers uh, upon the legislature to, to promulgate laws and the executive to execute the laws. So I, I, I'm mystified that anyone would put that, uh, any justice of the, of the Supreme Court would put that down on a piece of paper. Yeah, I mean, I, at the risk of turning this into a Justice Thomas versus Justice Thomas podcast, I can't resist that the only arguable founding era authority that Justice Thomas cites for the proposition that legislature means elected representative body exclusively and nothing else is Joseph Story, who Justice Thomas disparaged as an authoritative interpreter of the Constitution in his dissent in U.S. term limits v. Thornton. And the courts, the majority reminds him of that in the majority opinion by pointedly citing Justice Thomas for the proposition that story is too remote to be a reliable authority with respect to original meaning. Well, well, let's turn to the majority opinion. Chief Justice Roberts mustered many interpretive tools on behalf of his conclusion, including text, original public meaning, uh, precedent, 
historical practice. Uh, Judge Ludig, tell us about Chief Justice Roberts's arguments and uh, whether you found them convincing. Jeff, maybe the first thing I I would note is is that uh, the the majority opinion by the Chief Justice uh, adopted literally uh, every material argument made by respondents common cause and and by your brother-in-law Neil Cadiall uh straight straight down the line and so uh, as to what I thought about it I thought it was um uh, I objectively uh I thought it was uh, uh the correct in, in reasoning uh to the to the correct uh unavoidable you know conclusion uh it was a, you know, I, I wouldn't call it a particularly masterful opinion um, because uh, the briefing by all of the parties, not just Common Cause, was extraordinarily a superb briefing. And so whoever wrote in the case, and in this instance, the Chief Justice, you know, all he had to do, not that this isn't, that this isn't, is, is nothing, was decide, you know, the, the the case and then decide the roadmap for writing the opinion. And once he decided the case the, the way he was going to, the roadmap had been presented by the parties. Uh, I, I didn't, you know, this, this is worth noting for this, this, this podcast in particular that, uh, and you know this, Jeff, uh, from the moment I first came into the case, I I didn't think there was any question whatsoever. Uh, in fact, after the argument, uh, I said publicly, uh, though guardedly, of course, that I would not be surprised were there nine votes on the Supreme Court to reject the the, the most aggressive independent state legislature theory that was advanced by the petitioners. So, um, the, you know, yesterday's ruling was, was, uh, was exciting for me. Uh, but well, I'll tell you what, I did a podcast with Dahlia Lithwick yesterday and, uh, and she said, uh, she said, well, judge, uh, you told us so. And I, you know, I laughed and I said, well, yes, Dolly, I, I, I never have had any doubt about this case in, in the world. And uh, Dahlia said, I'm going to have T-shirts made up for you that said, I told you so. <laughs> so and, 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 and she's serious about doing that. So I won't wear them, but I would love to have it. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, look forward to Dahlia's T-shirts. Um, Evan, there was much that was uh, striking about the majority opinion. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts' defense of judicial review uh, struck me as perhaps the most extensive uh, defense of the consistency of judicial review with the original understanding of the Constitution that the Supreme Court has ever handed down since Marbury. Uh, What do you think of that, and what, what struck you about the majority opinion? Yeah, so it's kind of a tour of the legitimate modalities of constitutional interpretation. You've got arguments from history, you've got arguments from text, you've got arguments from first principles that uh, constitutions in the United States, whether they are state or federal, do not repose absolute power in any institution. 
because every power of governments under American constitutions is delegated and limited, that judicial review pre-existed the Constitution. Uh, we first saw it in under state constitutions. That's what served as the pattern of judicial review that Chief Justice Marshall memorably defended, didn't create because it already existed in Marbury v. Madison. Uh, we've got lots of precedent, too. If there's any modality that I think uh, really dominates the discussion, although the discussion of first principles uh, being front and center is, uh, is I think, notable and um, uh, you know the most impressive rhetorically part of the opinion, uh, is precedent. We've just got precedent, 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 even precedents that uh, Chief Justice Roberts himself was on the wrong side of. And finally, we have uh, state practice, institutional practice sustained over the course of time. So pick your modality, Chief Justice Roberts is kind of conveying with this opinion, uh, big ISL loses against it badly. And even medium ISL, uh, you know, the substantive procedural distinction loses badly under it. So I agree with uh, Judge Ludig that it is not, it's not an opinion that really calls attention to itself uh, a ton. You know, it gets, the, it gets the job done. But I think that might be kind of the point. And, you know, it's early in the week for me to be identifying it as the theme of this uh, Supreme Court term, this idea that, hey, we're kind of still following precedents and hewing to first principles and, and doing law here. Um, but to the extent that that is, is a theme of, of some decisions, um, you know, I'm thinking of the precedent-heavy decision to uphold the Indian Child Welfare Act uh, last week. Uh, this opinion is consistent with that theme. Jeff, may I just add a point? Please. Uh, if, if I had been writing the majority opinion uh, for the court, I, I can't imagine that I would have ever referenced Marbury against Madison and, and the, the, the power you know, of the judiciary emphatically to say what the law is. I just think that that's singularly inapt in this case. It's just a straightforward interpretation of the Constitution drawn into question was never the uh, a power of the Supreme Court of the United States to declare what the law is. That raises the uh, question we've uh, deferred until now and, and then the question of mootness. And I, I gather that, that uh, Neil Cashel and, and Common Cause persuaded the majority not to allow the case to moot on the grounds that this would allow challengers basically to get advisory opinions out of the Supreme Court and then moot them out by changing the facts. And this would be a, a, a challenge to the court's ability to be the final word on the law. Um, Evan, any thoughts on the, on the mootness question? So I am not a Fed court's expert and I'm not as adept of these uh, doctrines governing jurisdiction as others might be. I will say, however, that the debate that uh, Justice Thomas and Justice, Chief Justice Roberts are, are having about mootness is, it's barely a debate. They're, they're talking past each other. So Chief Justice Roberts says, look, uh, we've got a judgment here. Uh, 
we have a judgment that this statute or uh, this map uh, was unconstitutional. And even though the Supreme Court below has reversed the reasoning that underpinned that judgment that the map was unconstitutional, the judgment is still there. And that gives us jurisdiction. It's not moot. Justice Thomas responds, well, look, um, there's a map. Yes, the court said it was unconstitutional and couldn't go into effect. But that constitutional reasoning has been overruled. So all that's left is the can't go into effect part. And that part is meaningless. The map is still there. It's still a statute. Nobody erased it from the books. And now there's no rule saying it's unconstitutional. No legislators are going to be liable to contempt sanctions or jail time. Nothing prevents the state from either enacting or implementing any districting plan. There's actually no judgments that affects the interests of any individual parties. And therefore, this is not a case or controversy that we can take up and judicially review. Citing Marbury v. Madison, I think pointedly, he says that is beyond the judicial power. So there's just a basic disagreement about the scope of the judicial power that's going on. I mean, I think that Justice Thomas scores some points in this regard, but I also think that to the extent that I do understand these just disability doctrines, they're very malleable. There's a lot of play in the joints, and he's not obviously right in a way that makes me doubt uh, the, you know, the, the prudence or the legality of what the court decided to do here. Judge Ludigan, unless you have further thoughts on the mootness question, if you do, please share them. And if not, I, I want to turn to the question of the standard under which uh, federal courts are free to review departures from the legislative scheme that the legislature has enacted. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts is a, a, a little vague about what exactly that standard is. Justice Kavanaugh stresses that he thinks that there is uh, federal power that remains. You, you, you've criticized the malleability of, of the standard that the court ended up adopting. So, so, so tell us about uh, why. Jeff, do, do let me make this one comment about the, the mootness uh, discussion in the in the court's opinions. Uh, there was no grand thinking going on there at all. Uh, the, the the majority applied, you know, one of the most traditional uh, analyses for for mootness that the court has had for you know two centuries, namely, as as the professor Vernick said, you know. Is there still a judgment left for us to review? That is, will there be consequences for the two parties if we proceed to decide the case? Uh, and, and, and in this case, there certainly was, as the professor mentioned, it, it, it was the, the 2021 map, which uh, uh, by its decision, uh, yesterday, the Supreme Court of the United States resurrected, <laughs> and uh, and it, and and as as of today applies. So uh, I, I think of Justice Thomas's uh, 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 arguments as as really a, a probably a, 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 an, an an angry uh, and and unthinking assault on uh, one of the most traditional. 
uh, definitions of, of mootness in the, in the court's history. Uh, turning then to the, uh, the standard of review, uh, first, uh, you know, as I had written uh, in um, the Atlantic article, first Atlantic article, this is the hardest uh, issue in the, in the case. And, and in the article, I, I explain it all, and I explain first that the reason there is no discernible standard is because the Constitution never intended for there to be uh, a federal judicial review of a state Supreme Court's decision interpreting its own state constitution. Uh, and I'm as convinced, more convinced of it today than, than I was then. Uh, fast forward to the argument, uh, and the court, the court didn't even broach the issue. Uh, it was, and uh, and 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 it, it was a. I I won't say an embarrassing moment. I'll just say it was an unfortunate moment for the court, but understandable because the court did not then have any earthly idea what standard it might impose. And the decision yesterday confirms that they don't have any earthly idea today what standard they would impose. So uh, um, remember, at argument, it, it was bordered on the silly. Uh, the court and the parties discussed whether the standard should be uh, sky high or atmospheric, uh, 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 astronomically high. Uh, and that was, that was the sum and substance of, of the serious discussion, of the, of the so-called serious discussion. Uh, now, to the extent that they uh, even talked about the Bush versus Gore standard, then there was very little discussion of that too. Um, I had written and still believe today that that, that standard is singularly inappropriate for uh, the, the, the constitu in a constitutional context where the federal courts are reviewing a, a state constitutional uh, decision and uh, whereas... Uh, the uh, Bush versus Gore, of course, concerned a, um, uh, a, a state statutory provision. And, and, of course, we all know that state statutes are, are drafted much differently than, 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 than broad, open-ended, uh, uh, glorious constitutional provisions. So they, they will never apply uh, the Bush versus Gore standard in the constitutional context. Uh, and, the, and, and it's for all these reasons that the majority didn't, didn't uh, even purport to articulate a standard. Uh, for your listeners, all that the court said was that state Supreme Courts, in applying their state constitutions in the ways that they traditionally do, should avoid arrogating unto themselves the power that's conferred on the state legislatures by by the federal constitution. Uh, that, of course, is, is not a standard at all. Uh, to the extent that they, that they were suggesting anything there, the court was suggesting a, a distinction between uh, the state Supreme Court's uh, 
ju- acting judiciously and acting legislatively. Uh, and as I said in the, uh, the one of the, the Atlantic articles, that's been a, v- a very, very powerful, effective figure of speech that, that has meaning in the context in the context in which has been used, which has been to curb judicial activism uh, for the past twenty five or thirty years, but as I said in that article, uh, it's not a standard of, of uh, for judicial review at all because it is a matter of of constitutional fact that when when a court rules, it is acting judicially. It is not acting legislatively. The court never acts as a legislature, even though it's that that phraseology has been very useful in the past. So, uh, so this is this this is the next case. Uh, I, for one, don't think that the court will take another case. Uh, you know, on in, on this this question in particular, until or unless a, a state supreme court. Uh, uh, issues a, an opinion that is uh, so egregious in its um, that th- that it cannot be said that it was judicially in- interpreting its own constitution. Uh, I can't even imagine that situation at all, especially especially given what this state supreme court in North Carolina did. In other words. To the conservatives, I will say, this was about as egregious a case as they could have ever imagined. And the Supreme Court affirmed that decision, granted, without reaching the question of whether the the state Supreme Court had had, uh, misapplied state constitutional law. Nonetheless, it's very significant that the Supreme Court yesterday affirmed that particular state Supreme Court decision. Thank you for sharing your critique of the majority's judicial review standard, the ordinary bounds of judicial review. Uh, Justice Kavanaugh uh, clarified that by saying he would adopt the straightforward test of Bush versus Gore, which would hinge on whether a state court impermissibly distorted state law beyond what a fair reading required. I had the sense that Justice Thomas's critique of this part of the majority decision may have been influenced by by your writings, Judge Ludig. And I wonder, um, Evan Burnick, do you agree with uh, Judge Ludig's uh, critique of the judicial review standard or not? Uh, I would go even further. Uh, Not only do I agree with the lack or the critique of the lack of the standard that the court articulated, but... I would say that there was no reason for the court to say that there is a role for federal courts in determining in the context of the election clause, whether state Supreme Courts have gone so beyond the reasonable bounds of judicial review as to functionally be legislating or doing something else without articulating a standard at all. So there is basic agreements about the proposition that there are some things that state Supreme Courts could do that would trigger 
an obligation on the part of federal courts to intervene. If a state Supreme Court interprets state law in a way that abridges the obligations of contracts or that takes property without just compensation, well, those are federal constitutional rights. And state Supreme Courts can't interpret their own state constitutions in ways that violate federal constitutional rights. And the courts, you know, states those basic propositions and says everybody agrees that there's some role for federal courts in ensuring that state courts don't do whatever they want. But it doesn't follow from that that it can do what the Bush v. Gore concurrence intimates it can do under the authority of the Elections Clause, which is determine whether the state Supreme Court has acted in a sufficiently unjudicial way in evaluating a state's election laws to justify the federal federal courts in getting involved. If federal right is at stake, of course the federal courts can get involved. But the court doesn't establish that there is a federal rights on the part of state legislatures to make federal election laws at stake at all. Earlier in the opinion, Chief Justice Roberts describes the elections clause as imposing a duty on states, not conferring a power which could in theory give rise to a right to make election laws. But all of a sudden in part five, it's a power now. The Elections Clause expressly vests power to carry out its provisions in the legislature. All of a sudden, some form of, you know, call it ISL, call it not quite ISL, but similar enough to raise concerns about federal intervention and state Supreme Court interpretation. We've got something here. And the court didn't have to say that something. It could have just said state courts don't have free reign if they violate federal constitutional rights like contract rights or property rights. But it didn't do that. It said this additional stuff and cited the Bush v. Gore concurrence. And all of a sudden, we're litigating, we will be litigating claims in the future that state Supreme Courts have in the context of election laws gone above and beyond whatever the ordinary rules of judicial review the court has in minds in interpreting uh, their own state constitutions. And this goes to what I think is, you know, a cogent argument within the dissent about uh effectively inviting litigation and nebulous judicial review of state Supreme Court judgments. To be clear, the Gorsuch-Thomas alternative is much worse. But this isn't great either. And even though the opinion in general, I think, is is very important for the reasons that Judge Living has discussed and uh, meets my most optimistic projections about what the court might do with big ISL, this is an unforced error, and it's one that's going to be litigated, and it's not one that I expect to be entirely harmless or uncontroversial. Uh, Justice Kavanaugh is obviously staking out some initial ground that I think leans in the direction of more rather than less federal court intervention and state Supreme Court interpretation. And so, you know, stay tuned and be a little bit concerned. Well, it's time for closing thoughts on this extremely illuminating and productive discussion. And Judge Ludig, I'll, I'll ask for yours first. When, when we began discussing the case, I 
suggested that uh, some of the confusion arose from the fact that Bush v. Gore itself was impossible to reconcile with the original understanding of the Equal Protection Clause, uh, whose framers never intended it to cover political rights at all. And uh, the, the efforts of the court to make up standards uh, flowed from that era. Having studied this so closely and, and made such a powerful contribution to the disposition of the case, Judge Ludig, is, do, do you feel that the same uh, error is, is arising out of uh, unoriginalist construction of the Elections Clause and, and more broadly, how should our listeners think about uh, this extraordinarily important case? Well, I, I, I think, if anything, that the, the majority's opinion yesterday is, is a reaffirmation of, of the restraint that inheres in originalism uh, and, and that in, instead it, it's, it's, it's the rankless concurrence in Bush versus Gore and the court's decision in Bush versus Gore that represented the departure from from that uh, traditional uh, traditional and originalist uh, interpretation of, of the Constitution. Uh, th- so then, if I may, I'll just return to Professor Burnick's uh, uh, final point in in in, in my closing. Um, I think he is exactly right that properly uh, interpreted uh, the the only limits on the state Supreme Courts in their interpretation of state legislative enactments is the federal constitution and the federal constitutional rights that are provided for in our constitution. Thank you so much. And last word in this memorable discussion, Evan Burnick, or to you. So I think everybody should be happy about this decision. Uh, It's an important decision. It does not, you know, cure all that ails American democracy. Uh, And I feel obliged to note that the Supreme Court has not always contributed to its health. It doesn't get Chief Justice Roberts off the hook for writing Shelby County or joining Brnovich, but it does prevent election law from getting appreciably worse, and it does so in a way that I believe is consistent with the original meaning of the Constitution, as I articulated in my brief. And that's worth, you know, maybe not three cheers, but two. I had part five not existed or at least said a lot less that was concerning, it might have been three cheers, but it's good. Judge Michael Ludig, Professor Evan Burnick, for increasing the awareness and understanding of the Constitution of We the People listeners and all Americans, thank you so very much. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. Today's episode was produced by Lana Ulrich, Bill Pollack, Sam Desai, and Samson Mastashari. It was engineered by Bill Pollack. Research was provided by Yara Derese, Lana Ulrich, Sam Desai, Samson Masashari, Thomas Vallejo, Connor Rust, and Harlan Katyal. Please recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone anywhere who's eager for a weekly dose of constitutional illumination and debate. Sign up for the newsletter at constitutioncenter.org forward slash connect. And always remember that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit 
We receive little government funds and we rely on the generosity of people from across the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. Support the mission by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership or give a donation of any amount to support our work, including this podcast, at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.